Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hello, hello. Today, I'm talking about what has Trump done to ocean conservation, to our National Ocean Policy Coalition. What does this mean for the state of our oceans and for the plight of marine life? Uh, In June last month, President Trump repealed the National Ocean Policy, and he shut down regional ocean planning collaborative bodies across the country along our coast. And what does this mean for regional ocean planning, particularly in New England, where I'm at, and in the Mid-Atlantic region, which I've also been working some with, and where my guests are um, very much embedded, um, as well as the impacts on ocean conservation in America from Guam to the U.S. Virgin Islands, from Maine to Key West and into the Gulf, from Alaska to San Diego. We've got a lot of water to cover today, and it feels like the waters to cross over are getting wider every day. So my guests today are... Jenna Valente, Ocean Policy Manager for American Littoral Society, and Sarah Whalen, Ocean Policy Program Director, also with the American Littoral Society. Uh, hello, Jenna. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me on today. I'm happy to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure to. We we keep seeing each other at these you know at these regional meetings and stuff, and it's fun to. Uh, sit back and chat on the telephone instead or something. Hi, Sarah. Yes. Hi. How are you today, Rob? I'm doing good. I just went to this informative webinar uh, led <laughs> by uh, Sarah and Jenna on the <laughs> the ocean. And I think you'll be, um, you're going to save that so people can view that later, right? Yeah, so we did record it. Um, For everybody's information, we did just host a webinar. Um, This is pretty common for the kind of work that we do. Um, That was an informative platform. Um, And this time around, it was focused on updating everybody on the recent repeal and replace of the National Ocean Policy, um, the monuments and sanctuaries, as well as magnificent events. It went really well. We had a great turnout, um, and we will send around some follow-up information on that. So if those topics are of interest to you, um, we would be happy to share those with you, and I believe at some point during the show, we will um, share some more about how to be involved in the work that Sarah and I do. Okay, yeah. Yeah, So um, you can either find Sarah and I at the healthyoceanscoalition.org. Um, both of our uh, contact informations will be listed on there. Great. I, I say this because um, the first third of your webinar is about what we're talking about today, and yet th- we're just having a conversation. The webinar had a whole slide deck of presentation. So um, if someone's listening to this, you know, months later or years later, um, you know, this is, you can um, bring that up and have some um uh, slides to follow along with the various policy terminology we're going to be talking about today and stuff. Um, Okay, so let's begin. Um, Jenna, what has Trump done? (laughs) Well, that's a really loaded question. It's my left, Adam. I'm sorry for my levity. (laughs) Yeah. 
um, specifically in terms of the ocean policy world, um, exactly a month ago today, on June 19th, President Trump repealed the national ocean policy and replaced it with his own executive order, titled Executive Order 13840, regarding the ocean policy to advocate the economic, security, and environmental interests of the United States. Um, I also mind you that this is a timely call because um, today would have been the National Ocean Policy's eighth anniversary. Um, so I'm sitting here with a little bit of a sad face on about that, but I welcome any opportunity to um, talk about the National Ocean Policy and all of the great things that um, it, it allowed us to do in the past eight years. Um, but this, this repeal and replace is a real bummer because the National Ocean Policy um, really helped us streamline transparency and communication among federal, state, and tribal governments. Um, it was the result of a decade of, um, even more than a decade of bipartisan research, recommendations, and public input and outreach. Um, and it's implementation centered on ensuring that our federal agencies um, that have jurisdiction over the ocean, coast, and Great Lakes operate in a transparent, inclusive, efficient, and responsive manner when it comes to managing our nation's waters. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that our ocean, our coast, and our Great Lakes, they're all really busy places. Um, they're economic powerhouses, and they're integral to national security and the health and well-being of humans and wildlife. So in recognizing that, what the National Ocean Policy called for um, was for more communication, more transparency, and coordination among federal, state, and tribal governments ocean users, coastal communities, conservation groups, so that we can all make open and informed decisions about how we are all going to use the ocean in a sustainable way without stepping on each other's toes and without over-exploiting the resources that we have. So this repeal and replace is a big deal because the U.S. economy and healthy oceans and a healthy environment, um, they're inextricably linked. And the federal government needs to be able to collaborate across agencies and industry to proactively identify uh, existing and potential conflicts and develop solutions for more efficient permitting and use and develop tools for um, to maintain a healthy and productive marine environment and uh, healthy coastlines and healthy Great Lakes. So... Um, just to wrap that spiel up is that when, what we're seeing with this new executive order is a, a shift from putting the priority uh, on conservation and inclusion and transparency at a federal level to a more bureaucratic directive that's focused on promoting resource extraction and ramping up national security. Yes. It was just phenomenal when, you know, we stopped and asked, okay, what federal agencies have issues involving oceans? And what state agencies? And to how many? It's just phenomenal. You know, we think it's not, you know, it's not just the Coast Guard and the Navy. There's a few other ones. And this national ocean policy made the different silos of government talk to each other, uh, which um, it was very helpful. We did it first in Massachusetts because um, they wanted to build, well, there are two reasons why. One is they wanted to build windmills, 
in the middle of Nantucket Sound. And so the Cape Winds had to go to each individual agency in the state. And the big agencies would point to, they all pointed to each other, go there first. And so they ended up going to the um, agency with the least invested in, in uh, what the windmills would do and therefore the least obstacles. And what you want to do is you want to go to the toughest ones first to see if it's even feasible to get going and stuff. Uh, yeah, and the other issue was that Winthrop had um, is at the head of Boston Harbor, and it lost its sand and had gone back to mud, and so the town folks wanted a beach returned. And two years later, the, the sand movers of the state came and said, yeah, we're going to move some sand in for you. And the fish, state fisheries guy was in the back in the audience and said, no, you're not. That's where my fish are breeding. And so the mm-hmm. town folk just looked at these two government agencies that weren't talking to each other. You know, it's like, guys, get it together. Mm-hmm. You know, and so we uh, we passed the Mass Ocean Planning Act in 2006, I guess. And then 2008, um, Obama created the National Ocean Policy. And he appointed in charge of the National Ocean Policy, Deren Bad Brat, who was um, heading up the Mass Ocean effort. And Darren's daughter, Allie, was a high school student at Ipswich High School, and she was my intern to help me rally people in Massachusetts to do ocean planning. So it feels like a family effort that has just been thwarted by Trump in terms of closing down the whole national ocean policy. Uh, uh, Sarah, um, so what does this mean for conservation nationally? <clears throat> Yeah, so I think that Jenna did a really great job at sort of laying out what we've had over the last eight years, which, you know, I agree with you, Rob, that <laughs> it's um, it's really interesting to watch people um, recognize that, you know, you we talk about the federal family, right, all of these federal agencies and departments as, like, the federal family, and that you expect that they have mechanisms for talking to each other and making sure they don't step on each other's toes and, you know, figure it all out, and they didn't. Um, and mm-hmm. so to see that as a huge part of the national ocean policy has been really great over the last eight years, um, and I feel like um, that is going to be some sort of a loss which can translate to some conservation losses. Um, so nationally... Um, you know, it's no surprise, I think, anyone who has been watching the Trump administration over the last year and a half or so um, has seen that um, the Trump administration is much more comfortable um, leaning into extractive uses of our environmental resources as opposed to providing balanced stewardship. So it's like the national ocean policy is a skill, right? And it used to be balanced between conservation and use. And the Trump administration put a big thumb on the use side of the equation and just totally tilted it away from the federal agencies being seen as stewards and trying to balance their responsibilities. Um, And, you know, that's at a policy level. So policies aren't law. So I do want to make a note that, you know, all of our um, laws are still in place that deal with ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes conservation, like the Endangered Species Act and the Federal Fisheries Law, the Magnuson and Stevens Conservation Management Act. Um, So those things are still in place to protect resources. But when you have a federal policy that's supposed to guide the federal government that basically says, 
hey, we don't really want um, regulations and stuff to get in the way of youth. Um, that pro- that provides a problem, right? Because the agencies are getting their cues from the White House. Um, and so even within the responsibilities that they have to these their mandates as an agency um, and their responsibilities to Ocean Coast and Great Lakes Management, um, if they see the White House saying, look, yes, you have these laws, but we also want you to understand that we're telling you we don't want um, regulations to get in the way of sustainable use, um, that sends a message, I think, to the agencies. So from the conservation perspective, that's Hmm. concerning for me, especially um, since we've seen the administration um, propose to open 90% of our, you know, offshore waters to oil, offshore oil and gas exploration. So it's not like this new Trump policy is going to sit in a vacuum by itself it's sending a message to agencies that are saying, just that saying, you know, we do prioritize economic dominance, you know, reducing our reliance on foreign oil um, and gives them a sense of where their work should be headed. Um, and I also think as far as conservation nationally goes, um, it could prevent that sort of effective coordination and collaboration between federal agencies making decisions um, that impact these resources, yes, right? These resources that. are, yeah, yep. So that's concerning, I think, from my perspective as a conservationist, um, that, you know, these agencies could go sort of back to the old status quo of, well, this agency makes this decision on offshore oil and gas, and this agency makes this decision on marine mammals, and only where they have to engage each other by law are they going to do that. Um, and I think that that could just have some unintended even consequences um, for how our federal agencies perceive their jobs. Wow. I, um, people tend to think that, you know, the National Ocean Policy had regulatory authority, but all the regulations come out of the agencies, and none of them come from mm-hmm. uh, National Ocean Policy. And so it doesn't make it any, you know, the EPA has their mandate how they're going to regulate, and whether or not there's a national ocean policy doesn't change that, and so does BOEM. They have their criteria that people have to meet, and I think a lot of that has been set up by Congress and stuff so that those things are kind of embedded. It's just, as you said, this is just terrible that um, that it's stifling communications from either side, and, and that's um, that's been the exciting thing about going to these meetings is the water cooler talk between different agents, you know, from different mm-hmm. states of New England, uh, you know, um, and and then when we all came together on this, um, on let's see, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm getting ahead. I'm gonna check my what we agree to talk on the order of what when. Um, yeah, so um, I, I keep coming back to New England. So uh, Jenna, tell me more about the New England. Uh, regional planning, because this is where it's all about, and so I keep coming back to that, but but um, we haven't really introduced that um, to our listeners yet, so Jenna, help me out. Sure, here. yeah, and I, I, um, I think just before I dive a little bit deeper into what's going on in New England, um, I think that it's really important to put an emphasis on what Sarah was saying um, about, you know, this this national ocean policy repeal and replace, it's, it, you know, it's really unfortunate for the, 
the work and collaborative efforts that we've been seeing come out of federal, state, and tribal agencies and ocean users and ocean stakeholders over the past eight years or so. So what this really is, is setting the tone um, and making it really clear what the priorities are for the Trump administration in terms of conservation. Um, This is just one piece in a way larger environmental puzzle Um, To date, he has tried, the Trump administration has tried to, um, or successfully has, or is in the process of rolling back um, 76 different environmental rules and regulations. Um, So this is not a one-off attempt. Um, This is one piece of a way larger, um, very concerning puzzle, Um, one puzzle that I would not like to assemble. But so when we look more specifically into what this all means for the New England and Northeast region, um, I do think that it's really important to note that all of the regions that are engaged in a regional ocean planning process are still working to fully understand what this change in policy means Um, Because it's still fresh. It is uh, exactly a month old today. Um, So a lot of these groups and regionals um, were previously the regional planning bodies um, and other ocean managers. I have seen they're taking this time right now to check in internally um, and decide how best to move forward, um, how to not lose any progress and how to continue um, working along the path to achieve their goals that they laid out for themselves in uh, the ocean plans that they created. Uh, to, so also, I'll just provide a, a bit of context. Um, the Northeast was the first region in the United States to develop and have an ocean plan. Um, as somebody from the Northeast myself, I'm from Maine, I currently live in Boston, I'm really proud of that fact, um, that we were all able to say, hey, this is what we want, we all want to work together um, and look at how we're all using the ocean and decide how do we sustainably manage, manage that moving forward. Um, and the, the Northeast Ocean Plan was certified by the National Ocean Council in December of 2016. And since then, it's led to some really great collaborative work um, in the year and nearly eight months of the plan's implementation. Um, So the Northeast Ocean Plan lays out a couple of things. First, it summarizes the ocean planning process in the Northeast. And second, it serves as a guide for agency decisions and um, in practices that advance progress towards regional goals for the management of public uh, public ocean and coastal resources. Um, and where this all ties into the national ocean policy is that the national ocean policy and the regional ocean plans are directly linked because the national ocean policy served as the directive to the federal agencies to engage with the planning process if a region decided that a, developing a, a regional ocean plan was in their best interest for sustainable ocean management. And that's exactly what the Northeast did. Um, and so in, in saying that they were, the Northeast and the region is interested in developing a regional ocean plan, it thinks to that um, a regional planning body 
which included representation from federal, state, and tribal governments. And this body allowed all of these different agencies um, and governments to regularly check in with each other, communicate, and collaborate, and led to the development of the Northeast Regional Ocean Plan. So, um, Trump's new executive order completely dismantles the regional planning bodies, which throws a giant wrench into the mix in terms of the ability for federal and tribal governments to participate in this ocean planning process and have a seat at the table. Um, Because federal agencies are are no longer required to comply with um, regional ocean plans that were created under the National Ocean Policy. Also in the Trump Ocean Plan, it does allow for agencies, um, they can continue supporting the data portal, um, which I'll touch on in a second, um, and they can also continue to engage with the ocean plan, but only um, consistent with their agency missions and if they um, specifically reach out to several agencies to participate. So um, this definitely throws a giant hurdle into the middle of the, the implementation of the Northeast Ocean Plan. Um, but what I have heard from a lot of people that have been engaged with this process since the beginning and have been engaged with the implementation of it is that so many people are still really committed to seeing these plans succeed. Um, But right now, it just takes a little bit of time to check in and see what that looks like moving forward and how we can most be successful moving forward. Um, So... Um, I just mentioned the data portal, and I really think... Jenna, Jenna. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Before you go into the data portal, we have to take a short break. So we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back to talk with uh, Jenna Valente and Sarah Whalen about the National Ocean Policy and a specific tool that is really exciting in the way they've mapped out and and gathered all this information about different um, species of the ocean called the data portal. So we'll be right back after this short break. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforocean.com. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking... I'm talking with Jenna Valente from uh, American Littoral Society and Sarah Whalen, also from the American Littoral Society. We're talking about how President Trump has uh, closed down the National Ocean Policy Coalition in an effort to divide and conquer uh, all the different federal agencies uh, and state and tribal groups that have been working together to have comprehensive ocean planning and replace it with, you know, target shooting for the oil and gas industry and stuff. Um, and <laughs> if you, you know, and if you'd like That's to, um, yeah, Sarah, where can uh, people learn more, uh, follow along, or what's your website and that stuff? Um, yeah, so if you are interested in anything related to ocean policy, um, you can find us at... Um, literalsociety.org, L-I-T-T-O-R-A-L, society.org. Um, you'll find the work of our program. You'll find the things that the society uh, is doing in the mid-Atlantic region um, um, as a coastal conservation organization uh, based in New Jersey with us here in Boston. Um, and so that's a great place to start to find us. And Jenna, is there information at the Healthy Ocean Coalition as well? Yeah, um, so if I think Sarah might have mentioned it, but um, so in addition to looking at the American Literal Society's page, um, you can find us at healthyoceanscoalition.org, and you can find us on social media on Twitter. We are at National Ocean Policy, and um, that's N-A-T-L as an abbreviation for national. And then on Facebook, we are 
our national ocean policy spelled out completely. And so Trump can't close you down. <laughs> you know, he can try, but we're going to keep fighting it. <laughs> no, you're solid. I think you're going to survive. Um, so, Jenna, tell us more about the data portal that the New England, I think it was just the New England Regional Planning Group put together. Sure. Um, so one of the most useful tools to come out of this process, both in the Northeast and in the Mid-Atlantic, um, is uh, data portals. So because we're specifically talking about the Northeast right now, I'll focus in on uh, the Northeast data portal, but um, would be remiss to not mention that the Mid-Atlantic has one and the West Coast also has one, and they're, they're really useful tools to log in and, and um, help you with any sort of curiosity or project that you're working on regarding to ocean and coastal um, zones. So uh, one of the most useful tools to come out of the Northeast, in um, definitely in my opinion, is the Northeast Ocean Data Portal. Um, and if anybody is interested in accessing the portal, they can go to northeastoceandata.org. And what the portal is, is a centralized peer review peer-reviewed source of data, and um, it also has interactive maps on there um, of the ocean ecosystem and ocean-related human activities. Um, the Northeast one specifically focuses on the Northeastern United States, um, and then if you were to check out the Mid-Atlantic portal, obviously that would focus on the Mid-Atlantic, and then the same with the West Coast one, focus on the West Coast. It's really important that you check out both New England and Mid-Atlantic because um, sometimes fish in New England are managed out mm -hmm. of the Mid-Atlantic Fisheries Council, um, like striped bass, you know, because they were born in the Chesapeake. Uh, so, you know, the, the fish don't know the boundaries of Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. <laughs> so it's great that there's a Mid-Atlantic uh, data portal there as well. And it's really cool the way that they have not only um, put out the... Uh, vetted um, documents, that's science, but they have also allowed people to make personal uh, subjective comments on it. And sometimes there's information to be gleaned there, but at least you can tell the difference. And so it's very important that fishermen have an opportunity to report what they're seeing. Uh, and so this is a very exciting resource. Um, Jenna, tell us more about um, some of the, about the, re about the data portal. Yeah, so the portal is a really beautiful thing. Yeah, so the, the portals they're really a beautiful thing. One, because they're free and who doesn't like free things? Um, and they are publicly accessible websites that house thousands of data layers. So anybody can go on there and um, find verified data about issues that they care about or issues that they're curious about. Um, and the portals are actually really fun to go and just play around on. You can end up learning a lot of things about where specific wildlife are or where projects are being proposed or where shipping lanes are um, and, you know, thousands of other topics that you could be interested in. Um, and because this information is so accessible, we've been seeing everything from um, shipping lanes shifting to reduce whale strikes um, because we've been able to overlay this data and realize that at one point there were a lot of whale strikes happening off the coast of the Northeast. Um, and uh, we were able to proactively 
um, you know, take action and, and shift those lanes to help reduce the likelihood of a shipping lane being placed right over a whale's migratory path. Um, we also have been seeing offshore renewable energy developers using the portable the portal um, when deciding to propose um, where they might put something like a wind or a tidal energy project. Um, We've been seeing more informed decision-making when it comes to a wide range of things, but also like uh, location proposals for aquaculture sites or um, finding more of a balance between deep-sea coral protection and um, commercial fishing to try to avoid any um, damaging of really valuable deep-sea corals. Um, or, you know, things like the placement of wave monitoring buoys, which help increase boater safety, um, as well as increase our ability to monitor the weather and prepare for storms um, right off of our coast. So these portals just contain a wealth of information, um, and I would highly recommend anybody to go on there and, and check them out. Um, and play around and learn a little bit about what's happening off of our coast because it's really busy out there. Yeah, and if you have observations, you listeners out there, you know, when you're out on the water of New England or Mid-Atlantic, um, you know, th- there's a way to communicate with a data portal. Um, they, um, the scientists out of Woods Hole said that there were no sea turtles in Nantucket Sound. Um, and then when we were, they were investigating the placement of the windmills in Nantucket Sound, they found out that the sea turtles were there in the wintertime, and the scientists were there in the summertime. So that's why they didn't think there were any sea turtles there. But this, is, this data portal is just the beginning. There's so much we don't know about the ocean. So just because something isn't mapped out in the area, it doesn't mean that you can go ahead and build there. Unfortunately, they, um, the regulatory agencies demand you know, that uh, assessments be done fresh for everything. So with the windmills, we learn more about the, uh, the habits of the long-tailed duck, um, which feeds off sandy bottom. And it turns out that um, the monkfish also likes to eat off of sandy bottoms, and it's like a bear trap, and it's not too good for the long-tailed ducks and stuff. So you, you start seeing different overlaps in, in uh, populations and stuff. So it's a really interesting site, but it's only as good as it's informed by. So this is an opportunity for um, citizen science to uh, help them uh, map out better what's happening when and where. Because the ocean is three-dimensional and seasonal, and then um, then it's also shifting because of extreme weather events or or just shifting trends. The warming waters um, are causing, uh, you know, black sea bass to come up into waters that used to be predominantly cod, and the cod have been uh, moving north off of George's Banks, which is the shallowest and uh, uh, southern extent of the cod range. Uh, so these things are things in flux, and, uh, but it's a wonderful resource. Uh, Jenna, again, how can people find the data portal? Sure. Um, so the portal can be found at northeastoceandata.org, and the website is really easy to use. It's visually appealing, user-friendly, um, and, and it includes a wide range from just the maps that you can play around with, with all the data layers, to case studies about how people have used the map to make more informed decisions and better understand um, our ocean and our coast. Um, and the, the portal team actually will host 
training periodically. So if you get on there and you're enthralled by what you're seeing and you want to learn more about it and how to be a pro at using the portal, um, that you can contact the portal team and um, they can work with you to uh, learn and, and set up a training or attend a training that they already have on the book. Yeah, I think that's a really cool component of the data portals. I mean, the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast data portals have a lot of overlap. Um, and I think one of the coolest things about the data portal, and I know we're talking a lot about data, and that sounds really wonky, but, I mean, for the first time, we have publicly accessible websites where thousands of layers are sitting there open to the public that allows us to have the same information that agencies have when they're making decisions. Um, and it's really cool that they do these portal stories and they show you, right, why having these portals are so important and, you know, different case studies around fishing, around cable laying, around conservation and restoration that really give people a view right into all of the really cool things or some of the potential conflicts that are happening out on the ocean that we standing on a beach on a sunny day with our families building sandcastles don't necessarily see, but should really be Hmm. thinking about as coastal citizens, right? I mean, almost half of our population lives in a coastal region, I think. Um, And that's only increasing every year. So, you know, the ocean isn't the wild, wild west that we, many of us think of. I mean, I grew up in Illinois, right? I grew up surrounded by corn. um, And when I um, fell in love with the ocean for the first time, when I visited Florida to see my grandparents, um, I looked out and I saw some boats and I thought that was cool. But you don't realize until you really get a glimpse into something like a data portal or you do ocean conservation or work in industry or government, exactly how much is happening out there and that these resources are our resources, they are public, and why we should care about them. And the data portals give us a glimpse without having to go, you know, hundreds of miles out in the ocean to see what's happening and where there's uses and where there are potential conflicts. Um, and so I just think it's such a cool tool that makes it accessible to us as the public. Yes, that's right. And you were telling me earlier that um, the BOEM was using the portal. Tell us what BOEM is, too. Yeah, sure. So um, BOEM stands for the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. Um, they are a bureau housed within the Department of Interior, Um, And they are charged with regulating a whole bunch of stuff. Um, But in particular, I think the thing that I was talking with you about, Rob, was offshore wind development. Um, And the East Coast is apparently a very windy place, which I've learned in the last couple of years. Um, And so there are a lot of proposals um, off of Massachusetts and Rhode Island and New York, New Jersey, Delaware, basically the entire Mid-Atlantic and North Atlantic region um, to put um, wind farms. And a lot of that is in response to um, uh, the recognition that we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. How do we do that while supplying the amount of energy that our nation needs um, in a more responsible way? And so, Certainly a lot of the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic states have said, well, wind, because it's windy here. Um, And, you know, Rhode Island has the first United States offshore wind project, Black Island. 
Um, and New Jersey, where the American Literal Society is um, housed, our headquarters are on the tip of um, the shore in New Jersey. And um, the governor, the new governor, Governor Murphy, has said, we want to go big on wind. We're not holding back. We think it's really important for a whole host of reasons. Um, and so, you know, they're talking about um, what would be the equivalent of, like, you know, hundreds of turbines out on the ocean, um, not just in state waters, which is zero to three nautical miles, but in federal waters, which is three to 200. And it's that three to 200 nautical miles where the federal government says, hey, hey, this is federally um, managed space. um, And so this is on us to do. And so there's a big component of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management's job that is to um, site offshore wind, and there are laws and regulations that require them to do things. But one of, I think, um, the neatest things about the data portal is that um, these federal agencies, especially BOEM, is using the data portal to ask the public and industries for comments. Um, and so, you know, they're saying, look, there's this incredible tool. You all have a viewpoint. You have things you want to tell us. We urge you to use the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic data portals um, in your comments to us. Um, one specifically on, it's called the Renewable Path Forward, which is basically them saying, we want to put a whole bunch of wind in places on the Atlantic seaboard, um, and we are asking for feedback. And they're like, we want you to use the data portals. And that's the first time that that's ever happened. And so it's really cool to see these products coming out of ocean planning being used by the federal government and also by the states and by recreational fishing, um, which we do a lot of work with um, at the society. We have recreational um, fishing tagging program. Um, and, you know, we um, send our data and our data gets used in management decisions um, but being able to, like, look at the offshore New Jersey or New York and say, these are important fishing places for recreational fishermen is really important. And being able to do that on the data portal is pretty incredible. So there's just a lot of real-world applicability to, you know, a website um, for everyone who has a vested interest in, um, you know, managing and protecting these resources. Thank you, Sarah. Once again, we've need to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about how you can get involved in helping to save the ocean by joining the Healthy Ocean Coalition and other things that you can do to make a difference. So we'll be right back after this break. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI 
partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI Eco Steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. Uh, We're talking about what people can do to collaboratively better manage the ocean with more responsible stewardship uh, and better communication across agencies and user groups. And um, one way is to get organized. And uh, Jenna, can, Jenna Valente, can you tell me a bit about what the, ocean, the Healthy Ocean Coalition is? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, for those of you that are interested in the Healthy Oceans Coalition, um, we are a group that is jointly run by the American Littoral Society and the Conservation Law Foundation. Um, We receive our funding from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Um, And the leadership for the Healthy Ocean Coalition includes myself, um, Sarah, who is also on the line, and then Jennifer Felt, who is the Ocean Campaign Director for the Conservation Law Foundation. Um, and we are a national network of all different kinds of ocean users, conservationists, and concerned citizens that are all working together to support policies that protect, maintain, and restore our, um, our nation's ocean, coastal, and Great Lakes resources. So um, we... When I say we're national, I really mean it. We have members in every corner of the country, including Alaska and the Pacific Islands, all the way up and down both coasts. We have people that are located 
throughout landlocked states and inland states and around the Great Lakes. Um, And our goal as the Healthy Oceans Coalition is to serve as a conduit for our members um, by amplifying the conservation community's voice, by bringing it straight to our decision makers and positioning ourselves to positively affect um, conservation policy as it relates to our ocean, our coast, and our Great Lakes. Um, So central to our mission is supporting, connecting, and activating, um, and also empowering our members to be confident and vocal advocates for conservation policy at a national and a regional and a local level. Yeah, it's just really great. Um, It's just wonderful opportunities whenever we have... um, phone conversations to hear, you know, such diversity of people coming up to the plate, bringing perspectives to it and stuff. Um, uh, Sarah, um, what was I going to ask you? <laughs> oh, you know, it, it's really hard with um, all this doom and gloom and, you know, to get, it's really easy to get really grumpy about mm-hmm. it. I have stopped, you know, turn off the television and I, I read the newspaper now because I can turn the page. I don't have to, you know, listen through the, the new spiel of, of yuckiness and stuff. Um, but, yeah. you know, we need those stories of hope, you know, and, and there are mm-hmm. reasons for ocean optimism. How can we help with that? Um, yes. I am with you on the turning the radio and TV off as much as possible. It does feel like And I think it's just true, like, across the issue that, um, you know, bad media gets more play um, because it's usually a more dramatic story. Uh, But there really is so much cool stuff going on. Um, And I think I'll use an example of um, that kind of builds on the Healthy Oceans Coalition model. So part of our work to um, engage and activate advocates for ocean conservation is we host trainings around the country a couple times a year. We bring together HOC members or sometimes um, conservation groups working in a certain part of the country and spend a couple of days giving them the tools, helping them hone tools they already had um, so that they can be the best advocates possible. Um, and every time we do this, Jenna, Jen and I leave feeling so restored and um, just really positive and optimistic about conservation in America because we see the small regional um, groups on the water, in the bay, the watershed, doing the work to not just protect the places, but to engage citizens in why they should protect places. Um, So from things as crazy as, you know, um, inland groups in Colorado and Utah waging bans of straw campaigns or looking at their watershed to get microfibers out of the drinking water. Um, There are just a lot of really amazing people who are thinking about how they make their community more sustainable, whether they are on the ocean, on a Great Lake, or just even at a headland of a watershed. Um, and so I'm inspired by the people who are out there thinking about these things. Um, and there's just a lot of really cool conservation going on. I think if anyone listening, um, you know, just Googles 
ocean conservation and put your city in or groups to connect with, you'll find a number of people that are trying to do good things for their communities. In fact, you're probably the people doing it who are on the call. Um, And so I take optimism in the people who are out there doing the good work. That's right. If you just go down to the shore or to the waterfront, chances are you'll find someone already out there doing something. And if not, you know, mm-hmm. it makes a big difference for plastic pollution. If you find plastic on the beach, get it away from the beach because that's where most of it's coming from. And I go mm-hmm. to Washington to talk about ocean conservation, and I always get my meetings with senators and congressmen because they'd much rather talk about the ocean than war taxes or health care, you know. And you're mm-hmm. down there talking about something that everybody can relate to. I've been at, you know, pubs where they've been recognizing a, a congressman and, and uh, the number two Democrat walks over to me and says, hey, Rob, I went to Nantucket. And I'm thinking, why are you talking to me? <laughs> well, because he'd much rather talk about oceans than war taxes and health care and stuff. <laughs> so um, everybody cares yeah. about that. And, of course, you know, politicians want to be family people, and they don't want their kids walking in dirty beaches and stuff. And, and they have their stories to share, too. So um, this is, uh, you know, there's much optimism. And, you know, I've been at this for since Earth Day, and so... It's always had to be grassroots. We always had to to really rail to get um, the powers that are taken up by industries and stuff to listen to us. And so this is nothing new. People are saying life has gotten so much worse with uh, Trump. And it's like, no, this is situation normal, and we just have to keep at it. Uh, And and we're just so grateful for having those coalition days when there was an ocean policy. And that really charged us up. And so those networks have been made now. And they're not going mm-hmm. away, you know. They're, you know, they're, we're still getting together. Um, but um, and if people want to be involved in this work, uh, there are many ways. One is uh, to uh, come to my webpage, oceanriver.org, and please sign up for our free e-alerts. And I, I put out messages whenever there's something coming up with, um, you know, the, with ocean planning or fisheries you know, opportunities to participate in campaigns and petition writing. And uh, we're the only group that raises up a cacophony of different voices on issue. Uh, and the politicians love it. They'll step out, or not the politicians, the, uh, uh, the legislative aides will step out of their office and say, look, I know this person, but I don't know that person. And it just means the world to them to hear from their own constituents, because that's what they want to do. Um, Sarah, how can people be more involved with um, your work? Um, so I think the best way is to go to either the Society's website, which we mentioned earlier, littoralsociety.org, um, or the healthyoceanscoalition.org website where you can email Jenna or myself. Um, we don't have an e-alert set up, but clearly we need one um, so that we can connect you into the HOC um, and you can get updates on when we're hosting trainings or webinars um, sometimes things are just as easy as picking up the phone and learning about something new happening um, in D.C. or out in the regions on ocean conservation. I'm kind of kicking back to that ocean optimism we talked about for a minute ago. You got it. We all want to make a difference, so thank you. And Jenna, do you want any last words? We're closing up the show here. Yeah, I just think, you know, clean and dirty water affect us all, no matter who you are, how you vote, or where you live. So, um, you know, it's our responsibility to all be 
proactive to make sure that we we uh, help protect our ocean and our coast and our Great Lakes. And we would love for you to reach out to us so we can help um, bring you into the fold and include you in our efforts to make sure we are leaving the world in a better place than we found it. Thank you. That's Jenna Valente from the American Littoral Society. And Sarah, thanks for being there, too. Thanks so much, Rob. It's been great. Yeah, thanks for having us uh, on thank today, you, Rob. We appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. For all of you listening, thanks for listening in this episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Until next time, please take care, and then take a moment to take care of this planet of ours, especially the oceans right now. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.